0: Welcome back to America Speaks. It is with great excitement that we bring you this inspiring interview today with poet, lyricist, and songwriter Rick Cummings. We wanted to bring you this episode on the 4th of July, 2019, in commemoration of one of Rick's first remarkable spoken word poems titled We Are Taking the Country Back that he wrote on the 4th of July during the uproar over the Iraq War and all that ensued during the Bush era. Rick has an extraordinary gift of defining the times we are living through with his words, his rhythm, his rhyme scheme, and his ingenuity. I think that this history is most remembered as we can look back and identify the music, the film, the art, the literature, and poetry that keeps these events alive. Rick Cummings, in my estimation, is the voice of the people. He is our resident bard. He has a gift in creating spoken word and poetic themes that describe the madness that we are living in our country today. With that said, I would like to introduce Don't Talk to Me About Winning. Here it is.
1: Don't Talk to Me About Winning, 2008. Don't Talk to Me About Winning if you're speaking of Iraq. And please, don't mention democracy as though we had the knack to snap our fingers and demand reform of those under tyranny's thumb. For if you saw the truth of all the harm we've done, the pain would wrench your breath away and leave you feeling numb. Be done with your silver-tongued slogans or another well-turned phrase. Iraqi freedom, my ass, the place is all ablaze. Shock and awe, you bet, as a witness on the ground. Half a world away, hardly a whimper of a sound. Quick on the trigger, it's the American way. Blow the smoke from the revolver. Stand tall and walk away. Don't bother to ask questions, we got no time for that. The facts don't matter either, rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. Tat, tat. It's a fine, fine mess these neocons have cooked up. Arrogance like a rancid spice in their all-too-empty cup. We'll redraw the map of the entire Middle East. We'll poke a finger in their eye and blame the angry beast. We'll slice the pie and carve it up and never mention oil. A high noon hanging of Saddam set it all to a simmering boil. Don't bother to ask questions. We got no time for that. Gonna have ourselves a little war rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. A job fit for a cowboy just in off the range. Cock-sure in his saddle. Light crude in his veins. A good old-fashioned liar, now commander-in-chief. His sidekick, a stoic, a sociopath, and thief. Manipulating all the levers of the powers they control. Just give the folks a little scare and steal a bundle more. You know we're here protecting you. That's our only goal while sacking the U.S. Treasury. They've mugged our very soul. How many cannot walk? How many cannot see? How many are scared to death with haunting memories? Families laid to waste. No brothers at the table. Shipped back there for another tour, whether ready, willing, or able. How many untold stories of heroes, horrors, and hope of saving some while finding others at the end of their own rope? Don't bother with these questions. We got no time for that. The facts don't matter either. Rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. Talking heads say we're winning. Victory is ours if you'll just stay the course with me for... Just a few more hours. Gotta please my daddy's friends that make the tanks and guns. Gotta blow them all to smithereens for some Texas-style fun. The prophets shoot the moon were great rolls of the dice, and since we're holding all the cards... Wouldn't think of playing nice. We'll lie and cheat and fake our way, waltz right up to the bank, and in the end won't matter none if the whole game really stank. So yes, of course, we're winning. In case you miss the score, the math is real simple. Just add a few hundred billion more. Oh yes, and the language we use is Artful to a T. Crafted with such cunning, we've lulled Ms. Liberty. Our tentacles are long and we love the camouflage. Just tell us where it hurts and we'll give you a massage. We'll work your weary brain with words from A to Z. We'll even stretch the truth a bit if it helps you all to see that in the end we're victors live in color on TV. Enraptured in his Oval Office, oblivious to the last of this epic tragedy. So don't talk to me about winning or more of your bankrupt spin. We've disgraced ourselves and harmed too many to ever call this a win.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I think it's really plain and simple to see why you are my resident bard and what your words and your observations mean to so many of us, because this not only brings us back in time to feel once again the outrage that we lived through, through the Bush administration, But when you think of it in context to what we're dealing with today and the madness that we wrap our heads around every single day, the cumulative repercussions of who we are as Americans and who America is throughout the world is something we must respect as a people and for our future. So it's Beyond inspiring to me, and I believe also to Kim when I say this, that this gives us an opportunity today to talk to somebody who can, in fact, create this template of how our cultural responses feel to us and represent all of our voices, which you really do, Rick. So with that said... I know that throughout most of your life, you are and remain to be very politically aware. I would like to get a little context before we understand this awareness. If you could just tell us what led you to write Don't Talk to Me About Winning.
1: In that particular circumstance, it was spring of 2008 as the campaign for the next presidential election was coming up and people were jockeying for position. And there were these old gray-haired white guys, Republicans, talking on TV how we're winning in Iraq, we're winning in Iraq, and it just simply outraged me. And over the next several months, I worked on this particular piece of writing. Most of my writing seems to just be very spontaneous and just kind of free-flowing out, and this one required a little more attention and craft.
0: I know you have been impacted by the culture of those glory years of the 70s. And I consider you a voice of the times today. So as a poet and as a musician who has cut your teeth on the classic rock and roll anthems that were our roadmap to activism in the 70s, what is it that originally set you on this path to writing about the historic crossroads we find ourselves in today? And also perhaps as we gaze back Back to the Bush years
1: well I first started doing some political writing during the Reagan administration which essentially took the form of letters to home where my father and my stepmother both tend to vote Republican and I was trying to help educate them and express some of my disappointment and outrage with the direction I saw some things going relative to the more current poetic expressive things that have poured forth from me It really began on the 4th of July, 2003, just a few months after the Iraq war had begun. And I found myself really quite outraged with what was going on. And and interestingly enough, the timing of it was such that I woke up in Austin, Texas. I had been invited to Willie Nelson's annual 4th of July picnic. And the hotel where I was staying had a view of the Capitol building of Austin, Texas, which had quite recently been the former seat of Governor George W. Bush. And I found myself really angry on our nation's birthday. And this poem, this first really rant or poetic political protest, really the very first one just kind of poured forth. I could barely write quickly enough as it was just pouring out of me. And that really was the beginning of more of these poetic expressions relative to the political landscape.
0: Well, what title was that?
1: We're Taking the Country Back.
0: That's just an extraordinary piece of work. You know, one of the things that I feel frustrated about is that we don't articulate enough to what is going on. I feel people are becoming more and more almost numb with the circumstances, the conditions, the political soap opera that is going on in Washington, but it isn't really a soap opera because it's affecting a lot of lives. The stakes are becoming more extreme And one of the things that I'm able to get from your work is it puts a little bit of what I'm living through individually as an American because of how you articulate that. Your work includes some satire. Is it hard to be funny and satirical about some of the very difficult issues that we're seeing going on today?
1: Absolutely. It would be entertaining and comical if it wasn't so real and so dangerous. And so it's very difficult to... um, to, to, to put any of this into a satirical form and try to humor people with it. And I have very limited <laughs> success in that realm, and even then it was not by design as much as so many of these poems are very spontaneous in their nature.
0: This brings to mind a piece that you wrote called Stabbed in the Back. And I think what we'll do is we'll have the opportunity to listen to that. But before we listen, I do want to talk about the fact that something happens to us as a public when the pileups of disgraceful behavior become normal, which is what we are used to seeing, and it did begin with George Bush. So were you ever aware that your poetry related to the war in Iraq could, in my mind, be considered an anthem?
1: I think on Taking the Country Back piece, I could see how that could be. Partially because when I first was writing it, as it was, again, pouring forth, I was hearing it as kind of a hip-hop thing, that it seemed very contemporary. I'm not a hip-hop artist, but as a musician as well, somewhere along the line I found a beat that seemed to be, to kind of fit with a a hip-hop kind of a, a beaten pattern to it. And then in shortening up this poem, I approached it as a hip-hop piece, and it is kind of a a catchy, almost sing-along, almost anthem-like piece. So there's some fun to that, I think, more than just the spoken word or to read those original words of that poem. But again, it's fun, and yet the reality of what I'm writing about is frightening and, and dangerous and harmed many, many people's lives. and The repercussions of all that, we're still paying for.
0: Well, you know, that is a good lead up to Stabbed in the Back, I think, because it sends us on the path as we begin the 2020 presidential election season. This particular piece should stay in everyone's mind. So I'm going to introduce Rick Cummings and Stabbed in the Back.
1: Thank you for that intro, Tish. Uh, Stabbed in the Back was written on January 14, 2017. So this is exactly a week before Donald Trump's actual inauguration. Stabbed in the back. They stab him in the back as he's heading out the door. Protective armor of his office, but from that cup, no more. They stab dignity and grace as though some righteous act, pushing partisan agendas wholly absent truth or fact. They smirk and laugh at love and scoff at caring hearts, devoid of all compassion too proud to hit their mark. Yeah, just stab him in the back as he's heading out the door, gleeful in their hatred, the kind we most abhor. Joyful with the power that swung back their way, arrogance and bluster back in vogue and on display. When will they realize they're blinded by their lust? Rising seas will soon engulf them. Soon enough, all turn to rust. Fiddling with pretension as the flames draw ever near, singeing our great flag as they fan the flames of fear. It's hard to understand how some humans have no heart. Rejected by their parents, no love there from the start, ready to bite the hand that provides shelter from the storm. Their ideas laced with holes, looking backwards, gray and torn. So drive your swords and axes, swing with all your might. You might just land a blow or two, but will perish in the light. The truth of love will scare you if your hearts remain shuttered, your brains on overload, damaged from the clutter, cobwebs of ignorance and other hateful thoughts, too late to realize this is something can't be bought. So stab that black president if your aim is keen, revealing your own blackened hearts are ugly, dark, and mean. A reckoning will come, a pox upon your door, trampled asunder without ceiling or without floor. The floodgates will open, swallowing whole your evil ways. Could be the story of Noah, perhaps the end of days. In the end, it will not matter. Evolution will clean your clocks. Soon enough, just fossils embedded in the rocks.
0: Kim, you and I have both remarked on how Rick's work seems to perfectly encapsulate the times.
2: One of the first things that sort of strikes me is is how relevant your words are, whether they were written in 2008 or whether they were written yesterday. They're timeless, and they cut across so much of what's happening now in a way that is really quite striking.
0: Rick, who have you been influenced by as both an artist, as a writer as a musician, and as a vibrant child of the 60s and 70s.
1: I think the initial most impactful events, which of course we all were a part of and remember vividly, was the shock of John Kennedy's assassination. I think a certain innocence went out the window, and we were young and totally floored that anything like that could happen in this country. And certainly Martin Luther King... Bobby Kennedy, those assassinations that came a few years later. I think one of the things that influenced me quite a lot was growing up with some African-American folks that actually lived in our home and helped to raise me. And they were treated with such dignity and respect and as family, and they loved me like their own. And so that was a wonderful base for me to grow in my understanding, and I think it helped really dial down holding prejudice against anyone or or people of color. I know that there's certain inaccuracy in that statement because if we look deeply enough inside of ourselves, we will probably find some kinds of prejudice. But those were such formative and impactful things to be a part of that during the civil rights era, going back to 1965, I think one of the most important days of my life was my family had moved back to Chicago, and we're now talking June 1965. The comedian Dick Gregory was leading a civil rights march from Soldiers Field in Chicago to downtown to City Hall. The infamous Richard Daley was at the helm running not only Chicago politics, but largely democratic politics. That aside, I felt so strongly about civil rights that as a 15-year-old kid, I actually ditched school that day and I took the train downtown Chicago. And I was in my first civil rights march. I went to City Hall. I was the only white teenager that was there. I was cradled by all these lovely people that had participated, largely African-Americans. It was the first time I ever heard the song, We Shall Overcome. And it ended up being my first act of civil disobedience when Previously, Mayor Daly had suggested that if the marches were peaceful, there would be no problems and there'd be no arrests. The marches were peaceful. But I guess when you're someone of that ilk and you have the power that you do, Mayor Daly just could not resist. And at a certain point in the afternoon, all these paddy wagons started pulling up, backing up to the sidewalk in front of City Hall. And they then went about proceeding to arrest us. So that first act of civil disobedience was actually we locked arms, lay down on the sidewalk, continued singing, We Shall Overcome. That was a real seminal moment in my life. And if I may just add to that, the immediate aftermath of that was twofold. My father worked downtown only blocks away and came to bail me out of jail (laughs) Uh, and said not a word, just had a look of paternal concern on his face. However, when we drove home out to the suburbs of Chicago and I walked in the door from upstairs, my mother called down, welcome home, jailbird. My mom was really, really proud of what I had done, and that was just a hugely significant moment in my life.
0: Maybe it's the innocence of not knowing that when you come together as a group of people, this is the spirit of America. This is what we like to think or have been brought up thinking, regardless of the outcome. Sometimes it's violent. But the courage and also the significance of using your voice and the pride that you feel. And as an artist, I question this myself often. Can you then remain impartial when you're writing about the capturing of history as you do? I photograph that and also write about it. Does it begin with a partiality, a subjectivity, or do you get to find that as you're somewhat in the midst of putting out these words, I'm trying to be objective?
1: Well, I'm surely trying to be objective. I I think that things have been so skewed for such a number of years now, and misrepresentations largely coming from the Republican Party, I'm sorry to say, that things are biased within me and within the, the landscape of, of the nation.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so well put, because we need to face that, the bias, because the way you had described being a part of a group that took you in... What we have today is, and I want to get Kim's feelings on this, because at America Speaks, we talk about this a lot, the bias, the numbness, the sealed-up feelings inside, the go-your-own-way process without thinking of all the damage that's been done. What do you think about that, Kim? Well,
2: we've been force-fed this whole fear-based way of living and othering It hasn't just been happening in this administration. It's been happening for a long time, but certainly it's been exacerbated by what's been happening over the last few years, as I like to say, from the time the escalator moment happened, that we've forgotten that we all exist on this big blue marble together and that we are interconnected in in far more ways than we're disconnected. And so that way of living, to me, feels almost more exhausting than having an understanding that we are are part of a shared ecosystem and that what we do to each other and with each other matters far more than we think it does. And our actions have repercussions far beyond the immediate. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination it's the majority of people. I just think that the voices that are in this particular frame of mind are the loudest and the most obnoxious and also the most hypocritical. Mm. Um, And that's why I think it seems like it's worse than ever before. But I just think that they're louder than the voices that don't feel that way.
0: I think that's so right on. And I think, you know, it's that mirror that we look at ourselves in the mirror, which is one of the things that I have to say I love about Rick's work Because he does force us to examine the disgracefulness from a perception of some kind of lyricism. And so with that said, I think no better time but now for the Cheeto Dust Wrangler.
1: The Cheeto Dust Wrangler, December 1st, 2017. The Cheeto Dust Wrangler badgers the range, strangling the language and acting rather strange. Rides a mare, pretty as could be. Shoots from the hip, perplexed by all, he sees. A marksman, a diplomat, <laughs> in fantasy perhaps. Lost a roulette, so how about craps? Lose a few million, what does he care? The Korean Peninsula is way over there. They're not his people, and it's not his money. He's out to destroy, while pretending it's sunny. A bigot, a toad, a carnival clown, a hustler, a maggot with perpetual frown, an oversized buffoon, a liar, a cheat. Talks real big to the average Joe on the street. A wimp, a bully, a despicable man, out to trample on all that he can. The people hired a thug, swallowed his lies, somehow believing he'd bake them all pies. Oh, contraire, fellow citizens of this land, you passed over the facts, missed the sleight of hand. Poison the water, poison the wells, their skin is brown so they can all go to hell. Poison decency and all that is good, poison diplomacy, cause he thinks he should. Poisoned by delusion as paranoia rings through, rallying round in his brain from a set of loose screws. The epitaph reads, Here lies a joker who choked on his cards while cheating at poker. The mob turned on him, lynched him on the spot, but not before several drew out their pistols and shot. Shot full of holes, daylight revealed, there was no there, there, in the art of the deal. And the epitaph reads, or the postscript to the epitaph reads, Don't rest in peace, you son of a bitch. No monuments for him, throw him in a ditch. Leave him exposed, let the sun bleach his bones. Carrion eaters, do as they're prone. Leave not a trace, the winds will disperse. The story of POTUS, 45, swallowed by the earth.
0: I know on America Speaks, we have a tendency to be talking about a lot of these issues with a great deal of solemnity, because every day it just boggles my mind how things get worse and worse. Kim, did you have a question for Rick? Yeah,
2: I think it sort of goes in line with what we were just talking about. I'm just curious, from my perspective, and again, I don't think this is by any stretch of the imagination, the majority, but I do think that there are a number of folks who either have lost the ability to have empathy and compassion or forgotten. And you see things like, if you leave water in the desert for brown people, you're a criminal and you could be sentenced to upwards of 20 years. If you feed the homeless, you can be arrested. Do you feel this shift from when you were first spreading your activist wings? And and if so, how does that impact your creative process?
1: Certainly, I do feel it. It seems, sadly, to have only gotten more aggravated. The voices of negativity seem to have only been amplified over time. And unfortunately, helped along by the likes of Fox News. Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch, how they can call themselves a news organization and be so incredibly ultra right partisan. And unfortunately, there are millions of people that that's their only source of news, and they have been so sadly misled, and that's what they believe, and it has created a huge divide in this country. And it's tragic. I do not have much nice to say about Fox News and what they've done to this country, and I really hold some of those folks very responsible for this. It's been incredibly divisive, and it's really tragic. It's anti-democratic, it's anti-American, and yet they're the first to wave the flag and have those little flag lapel pins, and the arrogance is just uh, beyond the pale. I'm not sure if I responded properly to the question you posed, but that's what popped out.
2: There, there is no proper response. There's only your response. So thank you. Yes.
0: We are living in a banana republic today, and we are victims of propagandizement at the highest level when you marry social media together with this it's like a runaway train and again i have to comment on rick's work because there's something quite significant in taking work that begins and ends with the simplicity of not having to tweet it out or put it up on facebook so what i like to think of when i listen to some of these poems is who else can have the opportunity to hear them besides of course all of our listeners on america speaks but Do you feel the need to put your work up on social media?
1: I'm looking for the channels or portals that will help disseminate some of this, because as with you and Kim and others that have responded so favorably to some of my words, and I've been, like with my musicianship, it's been too much contained in my own living room or my own music room. So the times really call for courage and opportunities to get these things out there, and i I have to confess to being very much a 20th century person and haven't quite made it all the way to the 21st century (laughs) relative to social media and being able to to utilize those platforms to disseminate words, music, poetry, whatever it may be. These are remarkable platforms that we can use for good and for ill. So I have not really had the opportunity to take advantage of them, nor do I actually have the know-how. But I welcome the help, and I recognize the importance and the, the breadth and, and reach that some of these platforms have today, and it's quite remarkable.
0: So with that said, I would like you to gift us with He's Contagious.
1: He's Contagious, May sixteenth, two 2017. His illness is contagious, and he's infecting us all. We want our presence to stand, to stand taller than tall an impossible task for most to achieve. We want nothing less from our commander-in-chief. There's tension in my body. I'm wound tighter than a drum. We've elected a buffoon who's dumber than dumb. In his mind, he's the greatest, greater than Ali, a jackass of the first order on exhibition to see. Defenders he's got, but you can start to smell the rot. Question just might be... Simply chaos or a plot? Lordy B, can't you see we're being jerked off by a clown? New to this town, a carnival attraction with 101 distractions. The six-headed snake is just a fake. Fire eaters and tightrope walkers tearing open the coffers of our dignity. Acting with impunity and sleight of hand, it's all about the brand. Trumpets blare boldly once again, signaling a despot is at hand. Will anyone heed the call as they smile, dancing at their backwards focused conservative ball? But here's one thing for sure there'll be no cure for the creeping rust and the loss of trust in the crumbling tower of Trump.
0: When I listen to your work and the style of your craft, it really brings me back to the peace and love generation and to the era that I grew up in of classic rock and roll. So when you think back to growing up during this time, which bands and which musicians were you most influenced by?
1: Having been raised in the mid-60s in the good old San Francisco Bay Area, I was quite young, 16, 17 years old, and a lot of these new bands that were emerging with these particularly, you know, peculiar names like Country Joe and the Fish, Jefferson Airplane, Chocolate Watch Band, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and the weirdest one of them all, the... Grateful Dead, <laughs> we were young, but we were buying all these first records, and yet amongst my peers, none of us had actually made it to the Fillmore Auditorium, so we didn't have a whole lot of first-hand exposure to the the live music, but that kind of set the table in a sense. And I personally actually was put off by the name Grateful Dead. It was just a little too weird for me. Apparently, it was pretty weird for them as well, but their name, remarkably, was actually in one of these mega dictionaries, one of these things that's like six inches thick and it happened to be just open to a page when the Grateful Dead were formerly known as the Warlocks, that someone else had that name. They needed to pick a new name and somehow, remarkably, the Grateful Dead is actually in a dictionary and these guys thought, wow, that's really weird, but we'll run with it. I was a bit slow actually getting around to discovering their music even though I did have and enjoy listening to their very first record. It was a few years later that actually an older brother and younger sister were a little ahead of me, and I started borrowing some of their records and listening to what I think one of the the records. If there was the you could only take a couple of albums or some music to the proverbial desert island, you were stranded for the rest of your days. <laughs> uh, American Beauty by the Grateful Dead, that came out in 1970, really started to to open my ears to such interesting lyrics, and it was not weird; it was more folksy and rhythmic and a lot of wisdom uh, in that album and that started to, to open me up more and then other albums and starting to listen to some of their live performances and finally in 1971 I was actually visiting from college from Chicago visiting the Bay Area and my brother invited me to go to my very first Grateful Dead concert at Winterland. And it was a game changer. Absolutely changed my life in the sense that at that point in time, I had the privilege of seeing most of the great, well-known bands of the era, with the exception of The Doors or Cream or Jimi Hendrix. Those are three really big ones that I did not get to see, but almost everyone else, including The Beatles. And when I first saw The Grateful Dead, I was very taken with the quality of the music, there were no egotistical guys jumping around. There was no flash. It was just all about the music. And it was so pure, it was so straightforward. It grabbed me, but something also happened that night. That in they're known for you know very long jams and, and improvisational music. And in the second set, traditionally, uh, where they go into longer jammy types of musical improvisation, they did a song that I didn't know the name of at the time, but it's called the other one. And in the middle of it, something inside me really like snapped. I've never heard music like this in my life. It was absolutely extraordinary, but something snapped or clicked or whatever, or just opened a new door that was absolutely fascinating to me. And Mm -hmm. I walked through it. And I'm still on that train, that path, that trail. (laughs) And it still, it brings me joy to this day.
0: But I think that's what happens to us. There are those moments in life where you look back and you think, you know what, that's what made me pick up a camera or write A particular narrative story. I can identify when those moments were for me as a photographer. So I'm curious, does your music intersect with your poetry now? Do you often start out writing something? Do you then think, wow, this would make a great tune? Or do I have a tune
1: for it? You know, from interviews that I've listened to of other people that are asked sometimes, like, well, does the music come first? Or the lyrics come first? Or like with the extraordinary writing of Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, where Jerry did the music and Robert Hunter is just, you know, one of America's most magnificent poets. That that was an incredible collaboration, like Lennon and McCartney. For me, it's interesting because I don't know where this comes from, along with just the magic of music, being a musician or writing these poems. I'm a vessel. It seems when we are open, things come through us. And for me, it seems that often when I am inspired to write a poem, but more in the romantic or a ballad, more in the musical realm as opposed to the political, I often hear some kind of a melody as I'm writing out the words. Just something comes to visit uh, hand in hand. And sometimes that works. Sometimes I can remember that melody once the, the work is actually written. And sometimes I just write something and sit down at guitar or piano and and see if there's some music that might work with these words. But as far as the intersection of of the music and the political poetry, they're really quite different because, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, so much of the political poetry is coming from a place of anger, but also so valuing traditional American values of this democracy and standing up for the truth that has really um, been put on holiday leave, it's which is just tragic, where my music and poetry The musical stuff tends to come from a more positive place, and I'm guilty of being a terrible romantic.
0: Given the combination of rhythm and message that will leave a lasting impression and lead us out today with a reminder that it is we, the people, that have the power to take our country back, it is with great excitement that I introduce Rick Cummings. We are taking the country back.
1: We're taking the country back, we're taking the country back It's time to stand up and open up your eyes, open up your heart Should come as no surprise, Pieces is patriotic, the bet there's no mistake These bush league zealots are sociopathic fakes We're taking the country back, we're taking the country back Sworn from the start to uphold the Constitution Shred behind closed doors makes this right for revolution. They say one thing, then do quite another If it serve their ends, they incarcerate their mother We're taking the country back We're taking the country back Secret arrests, black boots in the night Playing on our shelf shelving civil rights Ignoring all of history and international law Arrogance born of what? A movie they once saw We're taking the country back We're taking the country back Please don't be fooled by that regular guy's smile That easy going manner of his presidential style He's a liar and a louse Of this we can't be certain there's no Oz there If you look behind the curtain We're taking the country back We're taking the country back drunk with delusion or just drunk with power it's 11:59 and near the midnight hour the path to peace is not through war let's take away the toys and shut down the store we're taking the country back we're taking the country back They're without a moral code or a shred of decency Feathering their own nest while destroying our democracy Just follow the money you'll see what I mean It's a sham and a scam and royally obscene We're taking the country back We're taking the country back The insidious roots of darkness never seem to die Float in decency, they float another lie Democracy will fade with all these secret sessions It's time to stand up and teach them all a lesson We're taking the country back We're taking the country back Yes indeed, regime change begins at home Back to Texas with this cowboy and let him there roam Crawford, do less harm, confine him on his ranch in his own damn barn, we're taking the country back, we're taking the country back, it's not about the right or who may be wrong, it ain't about the left or who's super strong, it's not about a vision of us in control, try some true compassion and respect for all, respect for all. Respect for all, we're taking the country back, we're taking the country back. These flag-waving yahoos that think that might is right, got a lot to learn before they get it right. God bless the world, not just our nation, we're in this together, we're all the same relation, we're taking the country back, we're taking the country back. Speak truth to power in the end let's pray to god this all will mend we're taking the country back we're taking the country back we're taking the country back we are taking the country back
0: rick i want to thank you so much for being on our program today you know i wanted us to get a chance to get a feel for your work in part one of this interview but i want to invite everyone back for part two where we will discuss another level of rick's work especially important during the trump administration so next week please join us for part two of a conversation with rick cummings it is with great excitement That I can announce today that my book, We Protest, Fighting for What We Believe In, is to be published by Rizzoli Books and will be out on the market February 2020. Please go to my website, www.tishlampert.org, where you can find out where you can get your copies, where I will be doing book signings, and everything that you need to know about the book tour. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz and Kim Langbecker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story.
1: And a voice.